Welcome to this episode of the Atlanta Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Pam Askerney-Henry, owner of Pam's Magic Cauldron. Pam and I are connected through my wife, Julia, and one of her coworkers, but I found her career story fascinating, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about her journey from teaching to culinary school to ultimately owning her own business. And I'd also like to hear more about some of the challenges she's faced with heading up a minority-owned business in today's world, as well as some of the rewards that come with that. So, Pam, welcome to the podcast today. All right. Thank you, Paul. So uh, your, your story is fascinating. I, I looked at your website. Um, I, I want to try your ribs, definitely. I'm, uh, I'm an amateur backyard barbecuing hack, but I do have a smoker grill. So I've, I've tried some different uh, selections, and they usually turn out pretty good, but I'm certainly not a professional. So, um, so <laughs> let's... <laughs> so, um, you know, this, this podcast is based around Atlanta, which you're here, but you actually started out on the West Coast. So tell me a little bit about, you know, your, um, your background, kind of where you were born and raised, uh, a little bit about your family, maybe school and first job, you know, some of those things. Tell me a little bit about where you got started. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, born and raised, uh, inner city, <laughs> inner city kid. Um, Interesting, you said my uh, my first job. Uh, I've either always worked in food or education, and my very first job was at a Subway sandwiches. Okay. <laughs> when I was fifteen, yeah, uh, and then from there. So how did so how did you pick, so my my first job was at Hardee's. So I'm oh. curious to know how you picked your how did you pick Subway from all of the other food places. Honestly, it was, they were hiring. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it comes down to that, right? Yeah. The, well, so I attempted to get a job at, at a rallies and there was something going, I think they were doing something a little funny because I was 15 mm-hmm. and um, I don't think that legally, whatever their entity was, they couldn't get the work permit situated. Okay. And then, so the next thing was a subway and they could get yeah. situated. But um, interestingly, I ended up quitting that job. Mm, I, I don't even think I worked for a year because the owner tried not to pay me. Oh, wow. <laughs> at one point, I don't know if she was dealing with some financial issues. Who knew? You know, at 15, I was like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Subway Sandwiches. And then I went on to a Panda Express. <laughs> okay. Uh, which was actually really interesting. And that kind of, that really sparked my interest in restaurant because at that time they were still cooking mm-hmm. in the Panda Express. I'm pretty sure at this point there's more of a level of, you know, take the corporate package of stuff that's already been pre prepared and heat it oh, up. They just reheat it. Yeah. And now don't take, look, don't take my word for it, but um, I know how some of these chains have evolved to where they're not really, you know, cooking, but in the nineties, they were still, there was a walk, (laughs) there was a griddle and they were really cooking back there. Okay. Um, So I didn't get a chance to cook, but that I was always fascinated by the chef in our location and any chance I got to step away from the counter I was watching him cook. 
Okay. Um, so did you experiment with some dishes at home to kind of try some things out or was it mainly just while you were at work? No, no, I, I've, I've always loved to cook and some of it was came out of necessity because I'm an only child mm-hmm. and my mother was, was a single mom and she worked in education. So there was, she would have long days sometimes. Um, but I also came from a cooking family to a certain degree. My, my great grandmother was an excellent cook and she loved to entertain. Mm-hmm. So family dinners, holidays, Christmases were either at her house or at my grandmother's house. But I, you know, I watched these women put, you know, these elaborate meals together pretty much by themselves, you know, set these gorgeous tables and, you know, everything had to be, you know, just right. And that did not, that didn't miss me. You know, it just was, uh, some other was like, okay, it's, it's Christmas, you know, this is how it's supposed to look. Yeah. But it, it really hit me. And then I also had a grandfather. Um, and he actually wasn't my blood grandfather and I didn't find this out until much later, but um, he could cook and he was a cook in the army during the Korean war. Oh, wow. Um, but that man could cook. <laughs> he could cook <laughs> circles around did, my grandmother. <laughs> did, did he have some specialties or everything he cooked was fantastic? Everything he cooked was fantastic, but he did, his specialty was barbecue and uh-huh. just pretty much like, you know, uh, what we, you know, have come to know as Southern Barbecue was definitely um, one of his expertise. And so that's who sort of set me on this path, even though I didn't know at the time. <laughs> you gotcha. Know? Yeah. Um, but, and because I'm an only child and I spent a lot of time with, with my grandmother and my great-grandmother as well, um, I spent a lot of time with him. Okay. Be outside barbecuing. And if I could, you know, I'd be out there kind of watching and soaking up as much as I could, but you know, that he came from a, a different mindset, you know, yeah. that era. so there was a little bit of what I could do, but you know, yeah, not too much, but he definitely showed me how to fillet fish. Uh, okay. Cause he was a fisherman. He was a hunter. Um, so you got to see the whole process from like the raw materials and, you know, yeah. field dressing, you know, animals, or like you said, pulling the, the fish from, you know, the bucket out and stripping them down to fillets, right? Yep. <laughs> that whole process. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And, and then from the Panda Express, I think it, it was my junior year, junior or senior year in high school. I got, I got a job as a uh, peer counselor at a, uh, health clinic. I was supposed to counsel my peers on how to uh, have sex safely. <laughs> peers. That's the ulti- That's the uh, that's the the uh, the telling word right there. That's got to yeah. be some sort of conversations, right? Huh? Other yeah, other teens. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. It was interesting. I think I did more learning than counseling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, how did you wind up landing that one? Oh, you know, I don't know how I came through with some of these jobs. I believe they may have come up to our school. Yeah. Um, sort of recruiting people. And I it was me and two of my best friends <laughs> working 
working this working this job. Yeah. Um, and I think I maybe counseled one person. Yeah. <laughs> but it was interesting. Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I had I had worked in a drugstore in high school, and you know, obviously there was, you know, the prescriptions that would come in, and you had you know girls that were on birth control, and so they'd come in, and they'd be all embarrassed, and oh, there's Paul behind the counter, and they're trying to like you know be sly about it, and you know, it's it was just yeah, it's crazy. So high school is an interesting interesting time. <laughs> yeah, yes, it was. Yeah. Fun times. <laughs> Yeah. So coming, so coming out of high school, did you have? Um, so uh, in high school, did you did you think long term about the food business as kind of a career, or was I know it was more of a just kind of a hey, a paycheck to paycheck. I need some money. This they're hiring, and that's it. Did you think any longer term when you were in high school, or did it really? Um, was there other things that you were uh, trying to figure out? No, I really wanted to go into food in high school. Um, so I threw a small dinner party. I've done two. I did two when I was in high school for my friends. Okay. I knew that I wanted to do it. The problem was, is that when I presented this idea to my mother, I did not get positive feedback. <laughs> what was her concern? She didn't really say, um, at then I didn't realize that my mother didn't have very good communication skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, c- communicating emotion, let's put sure. it that way. Yeah. Um, now different generation, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, now I know. Um, I think she thought of it as servitude um, or menial. Mm. And see, that was, I graduated from high school in 95. Um I think we had just, we hadn't even really begun to get that whole food network, you know, Mm -hmm. um, buzz that was going. You had cooking shows on PBS because I watched them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Great chefs, you know, Jacques Pepin and Mm -hmm. Julia Child. Mm -hmm. But as far as like mainstream where they were showing chefs really making money, sort of being these superstars, right, that we see now. Yeah. They didn't have that. And so all she could think of, I, I believe, was um, just sort of in the past where black women, black men, that's all we had to do. You were a cook mm-hmm. or a maid. And so yeah. it didn't really sit well with her. And at the time, I just kind of thought, well, if I'm not going to get the support, then maybe I should do something else. Mm-hmm. And so I had to think of, okay, well, what else do you like, <laughs> you know? And I was kind of like that. A lot of kids were like, I like helping people. Okay, well, how can I help people? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really want to be a teacher at then. Um, but I thought, because I'm also thinking money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was like, well, lawyers help people. I'll be a lawyer. <laughs> um, and so I went to school, went to Long Beach State, and I started and stayed as a political science major, but about halfway through, I was just like, I don't like this. Yeah. (laughs) Or let me rephrase that. I did like it because I love learning. Um, And, but I knew that I wasn't going to like law school. I figured that out. 
Yeah. I wasn't going to like law school and then learning more about the justice system and um, I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to end up being broke <laughs> because I want to help the people who don't have resources. Yeah. So I I still follow through just because I'm kind of a crazy person. And if I start something, I'm going to finish it. I wish I didn't have that mindset and I could have focused on, um, you know, just sort of like anthropology and still, you know, gone on to do what I've done and, and, you know, study food. I just didn't have the wherewithal to, you know, to have that. So I got the degree in political science and really spent like a year or two just kind of feeling around after like, okay, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of did some odd jobs and then finally said, okay, now mind you, after my food jobs, while I was in college, I worked as a teacher's aide. Okay. Um, and this is how I knew I didn't want to be a teacher. <laughs> be a teacher. And it wasn't because of the kids or anything like that, but I could kind of see through the political, I could see the political aspects of, you know, state run um, public schools. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm a public school proponent. I just wish, you know, our uh, officials would actually let educators make decisions, but. um, Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to refrain from comments, but Mm -hmm. I know exactly what you're saying. I think anytime you have, you know, public funding, there gets to be, you know, a positioning around how that money gets allocated and someone has to sort of, you know, weigh in on things. And, you know, it's, I, I kind of equate just how you described it with the current situation with COVID and health. You've got medical professionals and experts that are being outweighed sometimes by politicians. Uh-huh. And there shouldn't be that battle, right? You should defer to your experts that know what's going on and let them make the decisions. I get exactly. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was really my biggest problem. Um, well, that was actually huge insight for you to kind of see that at an early age and understand that this might be a real battle that you're going to have to deal with long term. Yeah. 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 But then still at the same time, I'm young, right? So like, while that was in my head, there was, my mother was a teacher. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, well, maybe it's not as bad as I think, right? <laughs> um, but I did... I was a teacher's aide through college, both in special education and regular ed. And when I say special ed, I mean like behavior to where, and I don't know if they still have these facilities, but in Los Angeles, they had a few schools that were um, specific, you know, emotional behavior disorder Mm -hmm. facilities. And they had padded rooms. Oh, wow. Yeah, that that was a bit hard. Um, and so I did that. And then I was a substitute teacher for a year, found a school that I'd subbed at quite a few times. And I thought I could work here. <laughs> uh, they had positions open. So I interviewed, got hired. And then that's when I learned how things just sort of like how your world can be turned upside down. The principal that I interviewed with and that I had worked with that I really liked and had, you know, created, you know, such a great environment at the school she she moved (laughs) yeah and it really i wouldn't say it changed everything but it did make a big difference and i that was one of the hardest years 
of my life. Yeah. I was not equipped. Um, I went in under an emergency credential because at that time, and it's probably still like this, they just couldn't keep teachers, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So they were trying to do anything they could to get someone in there. And so I was supposed to be working on the credential while I was teaching. Mind you, I had a classroom, these poor babies out of, well, no, one, I started off in a first grade classroom, which I really don't think you should put any first year teacher in a first grade classroom. That's my opinion. Um, Then what they call norm day came around, around October when numbers had settled and they realized, oh, okay, we have too many teachers here, you know, on this grade level, not enough over here. So we need to switch some people around. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, unfortunately, they still had a third grade classroom that did not have a teacher from the beginning of the year. They had been having subs the whole year and first grade had too many teachers you know, for the amount of students they had. Yeah. So since I was, you know, new and I was pretty flexible and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll move. Right. Woo. Um, (laughs) Not only had they not had a steady teacher for two months out of the saving grace was there were only 17 kids in the class. Yeah. But out of that 17, I would say for sure half of them did not live in ideal home situations. Mm-hmm. And that affects everything, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, it was rough. <laughs> I would say from October to December, well, no, October to probably January, February was really, really rough to the point where sometimes I would be in tears. <laughs> on my way to work and have to collect myself in the parking lot yeah and then go in um and we got over like i finally got in the groove and then still trying to study to pass these tests right Mm. (laughs) um i got in the groove of it i'd say like around february so we got to you know know each other understand you know they got to understand what i was going to take wasn't going to take i knew better we also had to move some kids around because they were, I mean, there were kids and they, they just shouldn't have been in that room. It yeah. was not a special ed classroom. And some of them I needed had, that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure walking into, you know, a situation where, you know, I could, I remember back being in school and when you have a substitute, there is no structure. Everyone's right. different. So from day to day or week to week, you know, that classroom probably changed you know, 30 times before you actually walked into that classroom, try to put some structure and understand what's going to work, what did. And I'm sure it took you a couple of months to really get that lined up. Yeah. It was like, you know, the first day of school all over again when I came in. Yeah. Um, But I mean, they were sweethearts, but just had issues, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but yeah, so I did that for a year. I was really actually going to go back (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, I got pregnant and I ended up having really rough uh, pregnancy, like birth, everything like that was fine, but I wasn't going to be, I was one of those pregnant people that threw up every single day. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things. And then we ended up moving, moving set. But so long story short though, um, once I got pregnant, I thought, I'm going to go to culinary school. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what I did. Um, 
but that journey from culinary school to where I am now, I had lots of starts and stops. We moved from California to Texas. I had, you know, a new baby. My husband was working, traveling on the road. So um, once I finished culinary school, I really didn't do anything with it until uh, quite a while after. Excuse yeah, me. that's, that's, um, yeah, that's a real ch challenge. Now, culinary school, you can't do that remote. You have to actually be in a kitchen to, uh, to do those classes, right? So when you moved right. to Texas, did you have to shift to a different school or what did that look like? No, so I finished, I finished culinary school before we moved. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, it took a little while because I start. Excuse, I actually fast forwarded a little bit. I started before I got pregnant and then pretty much like, it's one of these old sayings, you want to get pregnant? Um, enroll in school or start a new job. <laughs> um, so it was pretty much as soon as I had enrolled, I got pregnant. So I was able to go, I went through until I had the baby and then had to stop. And then once uh, my oldest was about, he wasn't even quite six, maybe he was, he wasn't even quite six months old. And then I went back to finish that up. Okay. Um, but then we moved maybe about a few months after. So when you decided to do culinary school, obviously understand leave it education and that takes a special person and I'm not wired like that. So I certainly understand. Um, is there a certain avenue going into culinary school where you specialize in certain things or is it sort of a general class and then you sort of make it your own or how does that, how does that work? Yeah. The one that I attended uh, is Cordon Bleu. So there okay. was an existing culinary school in Pasadena, California, the California School of Culinary Arts. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Cordon Bleu was trying to make their, you know, the, this corporate way into the world, I guess, or just American culinary schools. And so they were taking over some programs mm -hmm. and they had taken over that program. It had really shiny wrapping on it. <laughs> uh, let's put it that way. And they had a they had a baking program, a straight culinary program, and then they had hospitality management. OK, so I knew that my end goal was to have my own thing. So I thought the best route was to do the hospitality management um, mm -hmm. program. It had a culinary component, and then it was also supposed to have the business component. Okay. Did I feel comfortable running a business when I finished it? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Did I have $40,000 in debt? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On top of my bachelor's. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a little deceiving to uh, think you're ready to sort of create your own company and, and not have the tools and still have, you know, the debt behind you. That's, that's gotta be addressed for the next 10 or 20 years. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, well, that's interesting to know that you had at least the foresight to go, you know what? I want my own business. Like at some point, I'm going to be running the show and I'm going to have a restaurant or catering business or whatever it is um, that's going to be yours and yours to drive. Were there things that you learned coming out of culinary school that were, um, that were useful or that you've leaned on since then? Um, a lot of the technique. Yes. Um, The business stuff, not really, aside from costing. Um, 
I will say I think I had um, more knowledge on costing than even because I have I have some chef and culinary friends mm-hmm. uh, now quite a few, and I find that I'm the one that people say, "Hey, how much should I charge for blah 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 blah." Mm. So I, I do say that's the one thing yeah. <laughs> that I got out of there. I think at the time I was so sort of math phobic that I thought it was going to be harder than it was. And so as I got older and I realized, no, you just, you, you're freaking out. You know how to do this. Um, but you'll be surprised at a lot of people and even some folks, a lot of chefs in top restaurants, they don't know costing. They just know I want to create this yeah, <laughs> and I want to serve it. And then they leave it to, you know, the big wigs, the decision makers to go, okay, well, it needs to, you know, we want to charge this for it, right? <laughs> or we need to keep it in this budget range. So you have to do this. And then the chef is like, but I need this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so that's really interesting. Cause I, I had no idea that that's part of the internal negotiation that goes on because you you know now that you think about it it's like yeah so if you're if you're creating you know some sort of a dish whether it's pasta or it's seafood or it's some sort of a steak or barbecue you've got you know what you're building in there there's a cost of that and then i see where the business manager the owner whoever's running the financials says okay i want to have a dish that somebody can come in and for 13 bucks they can have a meal or for 35 bucks they get a meal or whatever that looks like Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, they may not always line up. So then there's got to be this, this trade-off. And I'm sure there's probably some sweet spots in not only restaurants, but also catering where there's price points that people typically will look at, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, and trying to be mindful of that. So, I mean, especially because so I, I do things sometimes for other chefs, um, because since my specialty, one of my specialties is smoked meats and grilled meats, there are a lot of people who they don't want to do that. Either they don't want to do it or they don't know how to do it, or it's a little combination of both. Mm-hmm. And so often I am the, um, what, we, what do we call that? You know, they outsource to me. Okay. But then I have to say, okay, well, how much, what is it for? How much are you charging? So that then my price doesn't interfere with their profit margin. But at the same time, I'm a separate business. Sure. It's got to be worth your while too, right? Right. So I have to make sure that it's profitable for me, you know, and that's counting the cost of the meat, um, my seasonings, the time. But then I also have to keep it uh, put into account my wood and my Mm. charcoal. Yeah. There's that overhead, right? Yeah. And yeah. at first that was a little, I, sometimes I would forget about that. And then I'm like, oh, but I have to buy, you know. <laughs> and so I didn't make as much as um, I wanted to. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's important. Yeah. So, um, so you finished culinary school in California. Yeah. Um, you wind up moving to Texas. Yeah. You got, um, how many children do you have? Two. Two boys. Two. Okay. Two boys. Yeah, I've got one and that was pretty active. I can't imagine two. I'm sure it was. <laughs> we're, we're busy when we are young, for sure. If we're not breaking stuff, we're figuring out how to break stuff. So, yes. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you, from Texas. So tell me a little bit of how you got to Atlanta. Um, came to visit a friend. Yeah. And just sort of fell in love. 
And and honestly, before I left, uh, before I you know left for the visit, my husband was like, "Okay, don't don't get there and, and say now <laughs> now I want to move uh, to Atlanta." Uh, because initially we weren't going to move to Texas first. We thought we were going to go to Florida, but his job took him to Texas and it was just, it was opportunity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but we, there was always this sort of people would ask, well, do you like it? And I, and I would kind of, it was like a question mark answer. Like, yes. <laughs> um, because I couldn't quite put my finger on what I didn't like and then came to visit. And then it was like, Oh, now I know. <laughs> yeah. Now I know what I don't like. There aren't enough trees. Yep. Yep. <laughs> in Texas. And not that I had trees in California necessarily, you know, in Los Angeles, but coming here and seeing all these trees, it made me go, wow, I never realized I needed trees. <laughs> yeah. In my life. Um, so it was the trees. And then I was blown away by the amount of black people working and seemingly thriving mm-hmm. um in this area yeah <laughs> yeah um so and then my husband came to visit too and it was the same for him and yeah two years later we made the move wow and you are you're the third person that's told me that about um just you know the the, the thriving black population here in atlanta and the opportunities that you know are sort of just um, almost demonstrated where you've got um, professionals and you've got blue collar and working class and there's a whole cross section of everything, but it gives you a sense of, you know, you can do anything you want. And this is, this is a great city to start things in. Um, the city is, you know, run by, you know, great people. And there's, there's lots of opportunity that you can not only embrace yourself, but also model and show your kids that there's things that they can achieve as well. So that's, that's really interesting to kind of hear that. Yeah, it's a, it made a big difference. It's, um, you know, I know you probably can't understand it. I can't. That's yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not even gonna try and pretend I'm, I'm a, I'm an old white guy who's, um, you know, I, I know I've had certainly my share of privilege and, and things that I don't even think about um, have been a really big deal for, for yourself and your family and others like you. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it truly makes a big difference. Um, and it's not that I didn't see, you know, there's plenty of black folks <laughs> in Los Angeles and I honestly lived and grew up, you know, black neighborhood. Um, I didn't, I didn't go to school with white people until I went to college. Um, so I was kind of secluded to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I, and in a way, there was still a level of privilege I had too. I mean, I grew up with a black pediatrician. Um, don't get me wrong. And he was he was he was from he was older. So like my 18th year was my last year I went to see him, and then he retired that year. So he was already old even when I was you know even when I was a baby. Yeah. Um, but you know, in other positions, no. You know, and like you said, coming here, black doctors, black dentists, you know, just all over the place. Um, even though I did move to Smyrna, <laughs> and and mind you, Smyrna is actually is very diverse. It is. Um, yeah. But, uh, for whatever reason, in the schools around here, it just it, it to me, it's just begun to sort of have more of a reflection of the the neighborhood. But yes. 
it, it, it makes a huge difference. So that was one of the things that helped us fall in love. And you're right, there, there is great opportunity here. And, you know, I may be doing a disservice to Los Angeles by saying that I don't think I would have been able to accomplish what I've accomplished so far there. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I've noticed is that if someone says they'd like to help you, generally they mean it here. Mm. Um, and I don't know if there's that sort of competitive, um, sort of cutthroat nature of LA and, you know, Hollywood, um, culture gets in the way of that. Yeah. Um, but here, and, you know, of course help within reason, but I've really, you know, sort of been received with open arms and like, you know, I'm a part of a community, a culinary community. Um, but it did take me to sort of take, uh, how, how do I say it? Um, pull that, that competitive nature out of me <laughs> to, to take it out of my head because I didn't realize how sort of dog eat dog world my thinking was. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, when someone said, no, I want to help you out in my head, I was like, do you really? <laughs> you just want to know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I can understand that. It's um, I moved from South Florida, and you know we had a lot of folks that had retired or had moved down from New York, and they brought that doggy dog city world yeah. down to this sleepy beach town. And over the course of fifteen or twenty years, it turned into that. And so when we moved to Atlanta, we were like the same thing. Like you're driving through, you're pushing your cart through the grocery store and you don't, you know, you're afraid someone's going to take something out of your cart. So you're just aggressive about stuff. Right. Like, nope. Everybody's cool here. Just, you know, yeah. rain it in a little bit. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So you, um, so you land in Atlanta mm-hmm. and you've got um, family that still needs you. Um, how long did it take for you to kind of get back and start, um, you know, making some of the the tools and techniques and skills that you've learned in culinary school start to become a reality? Um, It took a while. Um, I I started it a little while I was still in Texas. Um, My second child was born in um, 2008. We moved here in 2010. So between 2008, 2010, I started playing around with baking. Because in my head, I was like, well, I can bake at home and sell it. And I have the kids at home. So let's try that. It was, um, it was a good start. Let's put it that way. But it didn't really take off anywhere. I, I had to deal with a lot of the mental. Now I realize it was my own sort of um, sabotage. Mm-hmm. Um, just of, well, you know, will they buy it? And are they going to, you know, pay what I'm asking? And, oh, I don't know. And, you know, am I good enough? And I haven't been in a restaurant and it's been so long, you know, that, that whole self-sabotage type thing, negative mm-hmm. talk. But yeah. I still kind of put myself out there, but it was like with friends and family. So then once we moved here, I was still um, pretty much on board with the baking but then it's like, you know, I didn't know anyone. So just sort of baking things, you know, kind of giving them away to people. And um, then people started buying it. But then at the time, I was still a little bit ahead of the time. So this is 2010, 2011, 2012. Yes, you had people doing, you know, um, baking with, you know, unbleached flour, non-GMO, you know, milk and dairy and all of that but it was high end, right? 
And, but that's what I was doing. But my, my clientele was not high end, you know, clientele. So there was a lot of, well, I literally had someone say, but I can go to Publix (laughs) and get cupcakes for, you know, whatever they were charging. Right. And I would try to explain, but you know, at Publix, that's not freshly baked. They don't bake it there. It's baked in a where it's baked in a warehouse. It's frozen and they ship it to each door. And then do you know what's in that frosting? <laughs> um, it's not real butter and blah blah blah. And I find myself, you know, trying to explain these things away. And then finally I was just like, if anyone said that, I'm like, well you should go to Publix. And in my head I told myself, maybe you're just not cut out for this Pam. <laughs> Um, and I let it go. And when it came time for my youngest to be in preschool, I thought, okay, it's time for me to go back to work. What am I going to do? I still wanted to do food, but I was thinking on the whole, you know, being logical and pragmatic. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I went into school cafeteria. The hours were great because it was the school hours. Um, I had an elementary age student and then a preschool student and my husband was still traveling for work. Mm -hmm. Um, So in my head, I thought, okay, well I'll do this because it has good, you know, good hours. It's still in food. Um, I can work my way, you know, into being a manager or something like that. Um, It was interesting it was actually fun. I learned quite a bit about myself. I do like fast pace. <laughs> um, hard school, work. School cafeteria is not fast paced is what you're saying. No, it is fast. Oh, it is fast paced. Okay. It's fast paced. Yeah. Okay. It's um, because I worked, I actually was at Campbell high school for, a while. I did some subbing at first. So okay. I just kind of filled it. I went from school to school, wherever they needed somebody. And I did some long-term sort of, they have long-term subs for the cafeteria too um, at a middle school. And it was great. I worked with a great group of, of women. Um, the manager was just fantastic. I mean, just, just a great environment, you know, compassionate, but also taught me a lot too. Mm-hmm. So I got firsthand um, experience at industrial large volume cooking. And you don't get that in culinary school. <laughs> um, the only thing is, it's really not that much cooking. So yeah. we're cooking, but you don't have the freedom, you know, to sort of be creative with it. They have the recipes, you know, everything is is um, itemized, you know, I mean, down to the T, okay, yeah. when it comes to cost and even the seasonings. Mm. And a lot of times it's too the detriment of taste. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But there was a little, I did have a little freedom with some things because you want them to taste good. You know, you want, you still want to be proud of your product and you want the children to be, you know, to want to eat the food. Right. There's still a level of care that needs to be put into it. Like the directions may say this, but if it's not going to yield you, you know, a quality product, you still have to change it around, you know? Yeah. Um, 
so that was a good experience. And then from uh, the middle from this middle school that I was working at, I ended up going to Campbell High School actually, mm-hmm. um, and was there for. I feel like I worked in there for two years, and I took the test for manager, but they put you on a on a list. So you pass it, but then if you're not necessarily in line okay. for, you know, for that move, if there are people who have been there before you, you know, longer than you, and they've attempted the, you know, the test so many times. And so there's a hierarchy. Yeah. Um, More candidates than jobs available, seems like, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's sort of you know, the manager positions are those jobs. Like you had a lot of people who worked in the restaurants for a long time or like the, the manager I had at that time, he was ex-military um, and food, you know, and culinary. And so that was a cushy, not cushy, but that was like a dream job sort of. Mm-hmm. 6 a.m. to 3 p.m., yeah. You know, one school to manage. So yeah, it was hard getting those upper level positions and so and then the the pay honestly is horrible. Yeah. Um food service managers they max out at like 50,000 a year. So they're not even on the same scale as teachers it sounds like, huh? No. Wow. They're not. Um, and so from there, that's when I started doing, again, thinking, oh, okay, is this really going to work? You know? Yeah. Um, and then I, I'd already figured out that while my children were a certain age, working in a restaurant or a hotel just wasn't going to work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just, I decided what type of parent I wanted to be and I wanted to be available. Yeah. Especially with my husband traveling. Um, so then I ended up going back into the classroom. <laughs> did you? I did. Well, I mean, but it's admirable because I mean, you, your, your priorities are on straight and, and my wife, Julia did the same thing. So I, I totally understand it. And I've, I've seen the benefits with our kids. So I yes. commend you for that decision. And I know your kids are better off for that decision. They are, they are. There, there were, there were times when I, I was really down on myself for it. Yeah. But um, no, you're absolutely right. I I would do it the same way over again. Well, maybe not exactly the same way, but you know, yeah, um, I definitely choose to be available. I was able to be in their schools to the point where you know I'm known within the community. Yeah. Um, I, and mostly great relationships with you know my former educator peers, but then you know administrators. So. And I believe there's lessons to be learned everywhere. Mm-hmm. Coming back into the classroom, again, I still learned that I don't want to be a part of this game. <laughs> that but, much hasn't changed. <laughs> no. But I do like teaching. So I want to teach food. <laughs> Combine those passions. That's great. Exactly. Um, so that's one of the things I'm working on, too. Okay. So how long were you back in teaching before you uh, were able to kind of make the jump into um, full-time uh, cooking and catering? Five years. Did you, were you doing things on the side to sort of kind of set yourself up to sort of make that leap? 
Um, or did you just have to kind of just um, one day at the end of the school, you just say, you know what, this is it. It's now or never. I'm going to make the jump. Yeah, I didn't really, I kind of stopped baking for people, but I, like I started a, a cooking club at Smart Elementary, did that. Um, mm-hmm. It was an after school uh, class. Uh, what else did I do? Did a couple of things that were still in food, but honestly, yeah, it was, it was my stint during PTA, um, which helped me <laughs> yeah. um, because I had never really been in business. And when you think about it, PTA really is a business organization. It's just a volunteer business organization. Yeah. And it was dealing with that and difficult people and, you know, budgets and things like that, that helped me go, if you can do this, <laughs> you need to get your act together. And so, and then I was turning, I was going to be 40 pretty soon and my kids were getting older and I thought, all right, you got to figure out what you're going to do. What is it? Are you going to stay in education? Are you going to go into culinary? And at one point, again, Paul, (laughs) sometimes I'm too logical. (laughs) Um, I thought, well, I think I'll stick with education because it's a steady paycheck. I know I'll have retirement, you know, and and all those things that make sense. But I I was going to go into speech therapy. Looked Looked in the programs, everything. Enrolled at Georgia State to just sort of get my, you know, my mind back into being in school. Mm-hmm. And I had a, just, it was like an aha moment when I looked at how much money I was going to spend, right? Yeah. Going to school again for my master's. And what was eating at me was what if you don't love it? <laughs> yeah. What if you spend this next 40,000 and you hate it? Yeah. Then you're what? still relatively young, right? You, you know, you're talking about working for another 20, 30 years, whatever it could be, right? That's a long right. time. Yeah. yeah. And so I just decided, you know what? I'm going to jump out there. So it was about middle of 2016 that I said, no, um, I'm, I'm going to go into food. I'm going to go back into food. And I told my husband and he said, I've been waiting for you to come to this conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> He got there much sooner than you did, right? Yeah, he was like, but you had to make the choice, not me. Smart man. Um, so that's that's what I did. I jumped in and I did a few. I did start doing some catering, did some catering for PTA, <laughs> for the school. Um, Mr. Ward was uh, president, not president, principal at the time. And he was actually really supportive of everything that I did, honestly. Yeah. Um, he respected me as an educator, but then he also respected my, uh, he respected my culinary uh, pursuits and asked me to cater. Um, I think I did a, t- a couple of teacher appreciations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, but I, I, I knew I wanted to make sure I did it right because during my baking time, I had a business name and all this, but what I didn't do is I didn't register it, even though I looked it up and I knew no one had taken my, taken the name, um, about a year into it, I had created a website and everything, and I got a letter from an email from this woman in New York saying that um, I need to stop using the name I was using because it was so close to her business name, and she would uh, have her lawyer contact me and all this. Now, in hindsight, I realized that it was really just a threat, mm. um, but it shook me. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. shook me. So... This time around, I made sure everything 
was done. I started with the LLC. Um, I got my EIN. I had my my LLC is under one name and my DBA is registered under with it. So I know that it's not taken, you know? Yeah. Um, And this is Pam's Magic Cauldron you're talking about? Right. Pam's Magic Cauldron is my DBA. Um, And then our LLC is another, uh, (laughs) is actually Always Woke Holdings. Okay. and I did that with manifestation thinking in mind, holdings. Pam's yeah. Magic Cauldron is not the only thing that and business entity that we will have. Great foresight. That's yeah. awesome. So that's my, that, that's the thing. So yeah, so for the last, let's see, so 2017 is when it was officially registered. So 2017 until now, and we're still going. We've had bumps in the road um i think the other thing that helped too my husband had a really good job (laughs) um and i thought oh i've got the flexibility you know i can do this now and then literally i don't even think it was a year later he he was uh he lost his job Mm. and i thought i'm gonna have to stop i gotta go back and get a regular job like all within because I was listening to the phone call <laughs> of him getting let go. Yeah. And then I said, no, 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 because you promised that you wouldn't quit. So you have to believe that it's gonna work out. So I didn't quit. It helped us. Um now we spent a lot of savings and for a 1K and things like that. Mm-hmm. But had he not lost his job we wouldn't have been able to um get into farmers markets with our product there were just some things we wouldn't have been able to do by myself yeah um now of course that was we couldn't (laughs) go um we just couldn't have neither of us having a regular job for a long time so eventually had to go back to work but um it was a that was the test of are you gonna do it you know like you said you you said you're gonna do this and you're not gonna quit so let's throw let's really throw a challenge your way right yeah um so here we are almost four years later and i've changed you know started honestly when i started i didn't know what i was going to be i just i knew the name I thought I was going to be strictly catering. At first I, I was doing just, uh, like lunches and I was going to sort of cater to the school crowd, but then realized, well, at the price point and the quality of food that I do, unfortunately, a lot of my teachers can't afford to just spend that every day on lunch. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then doing large group catering, we had our salsa product that even before I started the business, we wanted to try to bring to the market. We had that. So now, 2020, uh, in the midst of COVID, mm-hmm. <laughs> pandemic, um, I was actually able to sort of shift because of we, I was catering. I was working with this third party organization where I would go to corporate buildings um, and uh, set up almost like a pop up. Mm-hmm. Did that, was selling our sauces on the weekends. Like we were really burnt out. <laughs> yeah. So honestly, once I got over my emotions, when, you know, the pandemic caused things to shut down, it allowed me to refocus. Yeah. Um, and so now I've really been focusing on personal chef services. Okay. 
Tell um, me about what that is. So there's two aspects to personal chef. Either I will come into your home, create weekly menus for you, do the shopping, come in your home, cook those meals, make sure everything is cooled, separated, you know, properly and stored. And so that you can have, you know, uh, fresh meals for the whole week. Okay. The other side, what I do currently is I prepare all the meals, not in your home, um, but I still do the shopping. I customize menus every week based on your dietary needs or um, allergies or just, you know, preferences. Do all the shopping. I um, do two deliveries for my clients currently on a Monday and a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, my clients get both lunch and dinner. But for the service, if they wanted to, I would also include breakfast if that was something that they wanted. Um, Some people want snacks if they're trying to lose weight or, you know, maintain a certain um, weight. Snacks are important. Mm -hmm. Healthy snacks, at least, because um, like one client, for example, if left to his own devices, he's just going to eat what's available. You're talking to one of those people, too. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like part goat. I swear I'll eat anything in front of me. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, <laughs> yes. Well, that kind of gets in the way sometimes of health. Yes, it does. Yes, I'm um, struggling with that. Yes. Yep. And so he gets, he's in charge of his breakfast, but um, I provide him with lunch and dinner and snacks sometimes. Okay. Um, and he eats on a paleo sort of diet frame. Framework. Okay. Yeah. And then I have another client. Um, the husband is a diabetic. And they're, they're in our age range in his 40s, so not old, um, but also likes to eat, you know, delicious food. <laughs> and I and the wife, she cooks, but she's she says she can't cook. <laughs> OK, um, so that's what I and then they also help with his in-law. So I prepare meals for them and they also um, and for his parents. Gotcha. For me. And since we're talking about business and, you know, this is geared towards young, young folks trying to figure out what they're going to do or even people like, you know, in our age range who maybe want to make a shift. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized pre-COVID, but I just hadn't really like put it into action because I was burnt out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I realized pre- just before COVID hit that I, me as the product is worth more than just trying to sell food. So what I mean is, I don't know if you know, there are, there are a lot of so-called chefs out there who are, um, and I don't want to sound negative when I say it, but they're peddling meals, right? It's just like, okay, I'm selling this today, um, and it's this amount, and blah, 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 you know, let me know if you want to buy a plate, because I've done it as well. I yeah. still do it a little bit, um, but I'm shifting away from that, because it's not steady. <laughs> yeah. But the other side of it is, and so when it comes down to cost, right? If you can have catering makes more money because if I'm catering for 50, you know, or let's just say from 20 to 100 people or whatever and up, the more I buy, the less it costs. Yeah, the unit cost goes down, right? Exactly. Yep. So when you're just trying to push, you know, meals here and there, dinners, plates or whatever, your costs are high, but 
you still can't charge what you should charge. Yeah. Because it still has to be within reason. Yeah. Yeah, that market to, to spend $30 on a plate is probably pretty slim. Extremely uh, slim. Yeah. Especially yeah. just for something to be delivered, you know, delivered to you or you pick it up. Yeah. Very slim. If I go to a restaurant, okay. I expect, you know, I'll expect that. Sure. For a certain, you know, for certain food. But yeah. So personal chef allows me, I'm the product. My service yeah. is the product. Yes, their food is one aspect of, you know, what I'm doing, but I'm the product because I'm creating your menu, I'm shopping for you, and then I'm cooking for you. So when I tell you what my weekly fee is, it's understandable. Yeah. Well, because it's, it's that service, kind of like that, that restaurant example versus, you know, cooking in your home. Exactly. You're paying for a service and you're willing to pay a premium for either you know, you providing this, you know, it's like, okay, I, I eat terribly. I don't know how to grocery shop. I eat everything out of a bag, you know, versus, okay, here's a plan. Let's talk about how to get your diabetes under control or your cholesterol down or whatever the case is. And then you friend it out. So that's worth, that's worth a premium for people to pay. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And the time and the time you say. Yes. Yes, for sure. And that's, yeah. For somebody like myself, that's the other thing too, whereas I don't think about food until I'm hungry. And then I want to eat like right now, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> There's nothing in the pantry, you know? So yeah, it's, um, it's a struggle for, for a lot of folks. Uh, that's great. Think, you know, Western culture, unfortunately, you know, we are, we are programmed to believe we got to work, 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 work. You know, there's still that competitive, you know, that competitive nature, especially if you're in corporate mm-hmm. and you always want to make sure you're ahead of, you know, the next person and you're staying, um, you know, you're valuable, right? <laughs> you're valued. Well, then you got to come home and also try and be of value to your husband or wife and your kids. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, wait, I got to cook dinner too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something's got to give, right? Cause you can't put everything into every aspect of that. You know, there's yeah. sacrifices yeah. for and sure. Then, you know, you have no time for yourself. I get yeah. it. Yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit about some of the, um, the challenges that you've run into in terms of setting this up, either from um, marketing your product, finding, um, you know, uh, just like I'll say raw materials, but you know, the, the, the groceries that make up the products and, and things like that. Tell me a little bit about how you, you deal with some of the challenges with that. Um, marketing is difficult because there's, there are a lot of people calling themselves doing similar things Mm -hmm. um the whole meal meal prepping movement um has tainted the personal chef side of this because people think that meal meal prepping and personal chefs are go hand in hand and they're not the same so like meal planners they pretty much they'll create you know they'll just give you the same thing to eat pretty much you know the whole put it in a plastic container you know, drop it at your door or whatever. You have it in your fridge, heat it up when you want to. Um, You check off a list. Personal chef, what I like to say, what sets a personal chef apart is, and I was actually working on some marketing before our call, is trying to get people to understand this is restaurant quality food, but made conveniently for you to heat when you need. You know, it's restaurant quality food 
created and prepared with the love that you would put into your food um, or maybe more. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the time that I spend on, you know, getting quality products for you and then also still keeping your grocery budget in mind as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I, that marketing part is hard only because some people don't see the value in the product. <clears throat> but I don't worry about that anymore because if you, either you do or you don't see the value. <laughs> yeah. Those that do, that's my customer. Yeah. Those that don't, you're not my customer. Yeah. Do you get uh, new business off referrals off the kind of the, uh, the raving fans that you've created? Yes. Referrals are to me the best advertisement. Yeah. Um, I, I have, yeah, <laughs> they're the best advertisement. Um, <clears throat> I have received, so it's funny. So I, I have a, we're going to do a remodel on our house. There's a, there's a designer that lives near me. We ended up talking, asked her about um, services and she was willing to barter with me, which is great. Yeah. Um, and so I bartered basically my meal service for her design service. But then she in turn also referred me to her ex-husband. He's my client now. <laughs> yeah. Um, she's referred me to some of her other clients. Like she, she'll have the food and anyone, and anytime there's someone there, a client of her, she's like, you should taste this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, which is great. And, and then our bartering services are pretty much coming to an end and now she's going to be a customer and, you know, a paid customer. Yeah. Which is great, which will then, you know, continue. But yeah, the, I don't, my primary means of advertising currently are social media. It hasn't been great for this level of service. It's good for just the sort of, okay, hey, I'm smoking wings this weekend and I have this many available. It's great for that. It's not good for this level of service. Yeah. And so at some point, and I really need to hire somebody to help me with this. I know that LinkedIn is going to be my resource for that when it comes to a social media type of, you know, platform. Mm-hmm. LinkedIn should be where I advertise that service because those are professionals who need their time back. Yeah. And that's what you're providing for them. Yeah. So at some point I really need to shift my focuses to advertising there. Um, and then also, I guess, doing a bit more communication email-wise. So that's the hard part. So running this business, my husband does help me. And on paper, we are 50-50 partners. Mm-hmm. But it's more of like an 80-20 Yeah. <laughs> it's more of an 80-20 workload thing because he still has a full-time job. Yeah. Um, so I am the chef. I am advertising and marketing. I am communications. I am the bookkeeper. Um, and I've reached a point now where I have to start, um, really handing off some of this stuff so that it can be done effectively. Sure. I mean, just like you're saving time for other professionals. Now you've got time constraints that you're limited in terms of what you need to focus on and outsource the other things that maybe don't need your, you know, um, direct focus on that. And you can, you know, outsource that to be more successful as a company. Yeah. Yep. 
and that's where I am. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that's a that's a good problem to have, but uh, it's still a problem that you got to overcome for sure. Yeah. Well, um, so for some of the younger listeners, um, especially you know minorities here in Atlanta that are you know having to deal with a lot of things that are happening today, mm-hmm. what what are some uh, some bits of advice that you can offer now that you are you are um, self-made, um, you know, you've got your own business, you sort of control your destiny, you've got lots of, um, you know, um, lots of working experience, and how can you sort of button some of those things up, and, and what would you want to say to some of the younger uh, generation about either thinking about doing something like this, going into business for themselves, um, as a minority business owner, you know, what would you, what kind of advice would you offer? Uh, first, the first piece is do it. <laughs> like, make the jump. Yeah, don't let fear get in the way. Don't let fear get in the way. I mean, fear is, for whatever reason, it's always a factor. Um, just don't let it be, a, you know, be that needling presence. Acknowledge it and then jump and do it. Um, and then also educate yourself take as much so there's two parts of that though because sometimes that education will still the fear will still tell you oh you need more education right um but still you know knowledge is key talking to people again i I really think all this kind of circles around fear sometimes we won't you know make that stuff and and ask someone for advice because we think oh they're not going to talk to us right that's fear Mm-hmm. Um, but just do it because the worst thing that anyone can tell you is no. <laughs> Have you had to deal with um, people telling you no, and how do you respond to that? Uh, I have. Well, I've dealt with people telling me no, but then mo- the other part is people saying yes, but then they don't follow through. They're not really committed to it. Got it. I think that part is more irritating than the no. Because, and I think that's for me because I take people at face value because I'm a person, if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I have to remember that not everybody works that way. So the whole, if someone says, okay, yeah, I'm going to do that, but then they don't do it, is more devastating to me yeah. <laughs> than yeah. actually saying no. Um, now, product wise, at one point we were trying to sh- uh, shop our product to stores. And honestly, I'm really glad that those no's came up because we weren't ready for it. We didn't know that we, we were, yeah. weren't ready for that. Um, and so just from p- educating myself, putting myself in, in positions to um, get business knowledge, because I don't have that. That's the hard part for me. I have the creative part, um, but the business stuff just didn't quite come naturally, aside from the marketing. But I think that's also because it's creative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, now knowing about scale, you know, and scaling, it really shouldn't be taken lightly and you shouldn't try to do it too fast. And I'm glad we got those no's because we wouldn't have been able to do what we were trying to do. <laughs> Let's put it yeah. that successfully. Um, but I think the main thing, you know, coming back to those no's is just really, you know, evaluating A no is not a stop, you know, Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes, I mean, I consider myself a spiritual person. So I just look at it as, okay, this no is probably just a not now. <laughs> it's God's way of telling you, you know, there's a bigger plan, you know. Yeah. Deal with it. Yep. Yeah. They're hard at first, but, you know, I just always ask, okay, eventually let me, you know, hopefully I'll understand why this was a no. And I think a lot of, most of the time we will. Is there a time frame on that? <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, let's see what else. I think those are the biggest things is really just do it and don't be afraid to ask for help. That's a good one. I think a lot of us can kind of get caught up into whether it's fear or it's pride. No one likes to look like they're, you know, an idiot or they don't know what's going on or they're not, you know, clued into things. It's gotten maybe a little bit better, but I know for young people, it's you, you want to blend in. You don't want to look, you know, silly or foolish, but I think as we get older, you realize, you know what, I missed an opportunity to really learn from this person or that person, or, um, you know, it took me, three years to learn this when I could have done it in six months had I asked the right questions, you know? Right. Yeah. Don't exactly ask the questions. And even, you know, I've learned things from people that are younger than I am, but they've yeah. been in business for longer than me. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And that would have been, you know, super prideful of me to go, well, I'm older than them. <laughs> yeah. Do I need to ask them? <laughs> no. So, yeah, hopefully I answered that question for you. <laughs> no, that's good. It's it's all really good advice. And, um, you know, it, it's definitely useful for whether you're going into, you know, the culinary industry or you're going into business. But, you know, there's a blend of the two. You mentioned, too, that there's a whole business aspect side of this that you have to take into account. You can't just do the creative side because, you know, you'll be out of business before you know it or you won't market yourself and people won't know your product, et cetera. So, yeah, definitely. Um, that business part is important, you know, figure out what licensing and things that you need um, and then figure out the ones that you don't need, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, their main ones get insured, you know, protect your, protect your assets. And even when you're young, you may not have any assets, but it's just setting you up, you know, for, for the future. Um, so it was important for me to get the LLC because we did have some that. We had a house and I don't want to, you know, I don't want my house to be at risk. Yeah. You know, because of a mistake that's made through business. And, mm-hmm. you know, I stay insured um, and, and know your stuff. So I came across something and I can't remember where I saw it, but we, this is a phrase we've heard a lot. But know the rules so that you know how to break the rules. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes you have to break the rules. Yeah. It's what they're there for, right? Yeah. Yep. But you got to know them first, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. So know your stuff. <laughs> Great advice. That is awesome. Um, so I just kind of an open-ended sort of non-catering question, but, you know, as, as a white male, um, I'm, always, I'm always eager to learn as well. And, you know, I don't try to pretend I've got all the answers and I know where I'm coming from, you know, growing up and some of the things that I've had privilege what are some things that you can offer to me that would give me a little bit more insight and some, maybe some, some action items or things to do to sort of help things in today's world get better? That's a good question. Um, educate. 
So when you have, when you're in a position of power, no matter how small it is, right? Um, there are some things you don't have to know because it doesn't affect you. Mm-hmm. But I think it behooves all of us to step out of our comfort zone, step out of, um, you know, what is just tradition to us and, and, and ask questions and, and really learn, you know, um, I'm trying to give an example. So here's an example. <laughs> I remember having, being at a high school fo- at high school football game with some PTA moms a couple of years ago and they were white. The school, um, the high school was playing, they were playing a predominantly black high school from Atlanta. And I don't know if you've recognized <laughs> that there is a difference between how predominantly black bands and cheerleaders um, play. Yes. I was in the band in high school and I was always jealous of okay. those, uh, <laughs> those mainly black. Cause y'all have fun. I mean, it is, a, it is an experience. I yes. love it. <laughs> yes. So, you know, now I had this one woman, she said, ah, I just can't believe that they're just twerking on the field. And I said, well, first of all, they're not twerking. <laughs> You're just used to seeing what has been associated and is now being, you know, called twerking. Uh-huh. Um, that's, that's what you're used to. And okay, it looks similar. So I pulled up video of traditional African dance. I said, do you see the similarity? Yeah. Oh. Oh, okay. I guess I didn't realize. Yeah. <laughs> Back to that educate. Yeah. Piece, right. Yeah. It's, it's modern, you know? So I think that's the thing. Don't just rest on what you know and go, ah, or, you know, or, or leave it, leave it be, you know, really, I want people to educate themselves. If you see problem, you know, you see something that looks problematic in one community or one group is doing it. Don't just write it off as, oh, they're troublemakers or that, you know, that's, oh, that's horrible. Like, find out where it comes from. There's so many things, um, even down to, um, you know, I don't know if you remember um, quite a few years back, um, the idea of Ebonics was presented. Now, I was still in high school, I think, when this came about. And people scoffed at it, um, ridiculed it. Well, not linguist. That was in like Oakland or something was where it started, wasn't it? Yeah, there were yeah. two two um, linguists, I think, that um, were studying this. Well, most people just wrote it off as, no, nah, they're just talking slang, and it's because it's just broken English. Well, no, it's really not, because if you think about certain dialects, right, and you think about certain Asian languages and Asian dialects, there are letters that don't exist in their dialect, correct? Mm-hmm. Same goes for certain African dialects. The issue is, is that most of most blacks in America that were descended of slaves, our language was lost. But the dialect, the sounds, the way our tongues move, that was still there. We just lost the language. Mm. So there are certain letters that were in a lot of West African dialects 
or certain English letters, you know, and sounds in West African, in English, uh, excuse me, in the English language that were not found in those West African dialects. And that is still reflected <laughs> in how we speak right now, which is where Ebonics came from. But so many people wanted to, to just write that off because they weren't willing to, one, have the conversation and two, be educated. Mm-hmm. Get some education. Yeah. Really ask people, talk to people. And you know what? You don't even have to ask anyone. We are in the age of electronic information. Anything we want to know. Yep. It's on this computer. It's on our phones. Yeah. Yep. You have a walking encyclopedia in your pocket at all times. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that we choose not to. We choose not to. Yeah. It's easy. Well, one of the things too that I know is I've I've traveled the world in some jobs and I've gone to places that have different languages and culture and religion and political and I always I always hated having labels on anything because when you peel some of that away and you get down to a human to human conversation, we're a lot more similar than we are different. And I think it's really easy to button up somebody or a group of people into a label and say, Oh, this is how they are. They're different than me and that's it. And without asking those questions, getting to know people beyond those labels and names, then I think it's really hard to sort of understand challenges that people face. You know, there was somebody I was talking to recently about, you know, some of the challenges with driving just in today's society. And we're all aware of the, you know, some things have happened and certainly the videotapes and for, for a lot of white folks like myself, we didn't have to deal with that. You know, I got pulled over because I looked young when I was driving, but I never got pulled over because I was white. And one of my friends was saying, you know, when you drive to work, you know, you put in a podcast, you listen to some music, or you kind of get your, you know, your head in the game for what you're going to be doing today at work. You can do all that in your car. I'm trying to get from my house to my work without having a lot of drama or any other bad things happening. So my work doesn't start until I actually get in the parking lot and I know that I'm safe. And that was, that was eye-opening to me. It's like, okay, so when I see you in the parking lot and I'm already in game mode, you're just relieved that you actually got to see another day. And right. that just was completely lost on me. So just yeah. having those conversations, I think, is huge. Yeah. And, then, and then going from there and going, well, why yes. does he have to deal with that? Yes. And understanding, you know, this is like the whole defund the police conversation, right? People are so up in arms and they're like, we need police. Yeah, of course we need, you know, a level of safety and protection, right? But ask us why we want to defund the police. You know, what are the reasons? And then also ask, why is there a policing problem? And if people would ask that question, really want to know that question, and then they would understand the history of slavery, or I should say the abolition of slavery, and how our modern policing is a direct reflection on the abolition of slavery because they still wanted to keep African-Americans enslaved. (laughs) And so a lot of major city police forces were actually, Los Angeles County, you can look this up, back in the 30s and 40s, they actively recruited Jim Crow White South to be police officers. It was done purposefully. Wow. That's crazy. That is, it just, it just, it boggles my mind that here we are, you know, 
almost 150 years later after, you know, big decision in the 1860s, and we're still not addressing the root of some of these problems and seeing the effects of them generation after generation after generation. Yeah. And then even the effects of, you know, broken families, oftentimes African-Americans are, are blamed for the broken family, but no one's looking at, okay, well, families were torn apart. <laughs> yeah. You know, during slavery, we weren't allowed, you know, why is there an, why is there a potential issue with black men and, you know, and, and which is still a myth, but with black men and being fathers is because they weren't even allowed to do that. You know, you, you learn these things. There's tradition, right? Mm -hmm. There's tradition. So it's just education, you know, yeah. like yeah. Really educate yourself and understand, you know, yeah, we've been sold this deal that America is the land of the, the free, right? And the brave, but we got a long way to go. A long way. <laughs> a long way. Well, I, I appreciate your honesty. And, um, you know, myself and people like myself are going to continue to ask questions and try to educate ourselves and really get to the root of some of these problems. And it's not going to get fixed tomorrow. And it may not, get, it may not be fixed in my lifetime. But I think if we can try and get those conversations going, take action and try to improve things as a society and understand how we're all different, but we're all also very similar. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's the most I can ask for. That's what I ask my kids to do. And they're already embracing a lot of this too, that I've yeah. really been impressed with, but, but we do have a long ways to go, but I, I, I do appreciate all of the insight. Um, I think, you know, you and I haven't known each other for very long, but I have a feeling we're going to be talking much more, and um, so, again, I appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for, um, thanks for talking about your business as well as some more important social issues that we have going on. So, yeah, It was my pleasure. Thank you. Well, thanks, Pam. Um, so, yeah, uh, great, great insights. Um, appreciate your time tonight and um, look forward to speaking with you again. So um, thanks, Pam. All right. Thank you, Paul. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.